0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: That was a strange week, the week just gone. It was the week I met Samuel Beckett twice in Cork. Or I should say, I encountered two strange iterations of that silent Dublin maestro. The first was here in the Glucksman Gallery, a quiet, sunlit June afternoon with the Great Book of Ireland. The page of the Great Book opened on what must be one of Beckett's last efforts with a pen, a final tentative poem, his last fragment scratched upon an envelope of vellum. While the fretting conservators work on the original, you can see it in digital form in a gallery installation. That's where we met. The other encounter was with Samuel Beckett in the form of an Irish naval vessel, the brand new, digitally controlled L.E. Samuel Beckett. It sparkles in the fugitive sunshine of the Cork quayside, County Cork depraved, as Murphy says ungenerously. Its hooded guns face the surprised and bewildered city in the sharp maritime light between heavy showers we follow an enthusiastic young ensign as he shows us every facility of this latest samuel beckett the fast inspection rigid craft that can be launched overboard in minutes the multiple control screens on the bridge like beckett's prose this ship can survive weeks of isolation it can sustain itself creating drinking water out of the sea, even while the sun shines, having no alternative on the nothing new. Like digital words captured in the great book, this ship is something that works, finally. An elderly man turns to me and says, isn't it a miracle that we still own something? Ireland, I mean. Isn't it a miracle that Ireland still owns something new and shiny? That we haven't lost that too. Isn't it a miracle? It is reassuring, but I'm not so sure about miracles. I'm thinking more about the work it takes to create anything solid and permanent, whether a great book or a great ship. From the bridge of the L.E. Samuel Beckett, I can't see the Glucksman Gallery, hidden behind its screen of magnificent trees, housing the last poem of the great Dubliner in the great book. But I can see the copper salmon and the red and grey Omphalos of Shandon, the Church of Saint Anne, with its famous bells and its Mahony tomb, the very place that links Beckett, book, and ship. Here, that other great Francophile and literary trickster, Francis Sylvester Mahony, known as Father Prout, is buried in the family tomb. Mahony Prout is remembered unfairly only for his ballad the Bells of Shandon, which he himself was always prepared to sing even before the drop of a hat. The ballad was part of a complex attack on the work of Thomas Moore of the Melodies, an essay entitled The Rogueries of Tom Moore. The essay was republished in Prout's great two volume 1836 work, The Relics of Father Prout. This book was published in one volume continuously through the 19th century, in 1860, 68, 1870, 73, <coughs> 1880, 1886, right up to the early 20th century and the annihilation of dissenting voices by our single national hegemony. Prout was a dissenting voice in the Celtic twilight years, international in outlook, fluent in French, Italian, Greek and Latin He hated the twin heroes of Irish being Tom Moore and Daniel O'Connell. He was convinced that people who believed in a simple, single narrative of themselves were a people doomed to corruption. Because he was a priest, and because it was the 19th century, and because he had a great book that was constantly republished and widely read in the English-speaking world, the national anthologists needed to find something from him that was politically palatable. They chose The Bells of Shandon. Beckett, a maker of minimalist great books, was aware of Prout's achievement. In the 1930s novel Murphy, it is Miss Cunahan who keeps her tryst with Dr Neary at the tomb of Father Prout in Shandon, the one place in Cork she knew of where fresh air, privacy, and immunity from assault were reconciled. Beckett sought out Father Prout's grave when he visited Cork in 1936, wandering from Shandon to Fitzgerald's Park, where he was pursued by an energetic down-and-out. A shilling was offered, at which the grateful beggar promised to pray for Beckett, to which Beckett replied, according to his diary, "Oh, "'Oh, no!' As we disembarked from the S. E. Samuel Beckett in the late evening shower, it seemed like the last drops fell from the emptied, cloudless sky. A small boy, stretching out his hands and looking up at the blue sky, asked his mother how such a thing was possible. There is no need to record what she might have said, though her words would find their way into another great book.
0: It is early October in a drafty classroom in the West Wing of University College Cork, and I am bewildered, intimidated, and on the verge of throwing my hat at a master's degree in creative writing I began only four weeks previously. The class is called Writing and Experiment, and already I have been pushed to my experimental limit. There have been dance recitals actual dancing by us students, gallery visits and talks around the endlessness of language and an expectation of some sort of writing to flourish from these experiences. But I am overwhelmed by the relentlessness of the experimental and I am craving the security of the writing. Our lecturer, Dr. Jules Gilson, introduces Cronon O'Divillan, head of Special Collections, Archives and Repository Services at the Buhl Library. And as he unveils the story of the great Book of Ireland, something shifts in me. And for the first time in four weeks, I feel I may be in the right place after all. Cronon has come to give us an overview of how this manuscript came to be, and how it has been acquired by University College Cork. As he unwinds the story, bit by bit I am drawn in. But not only by the words on the page, by the artwork and the immaculate penmanship of the scribe, I am also affected by the untold and the hidden parts, the secrets within the vellum pages. We hear how in 1989, when parts of the country was intent on giving it a lashjack and focused on World Cup qualification, another group was considering the hopes, dreams, fears and imaginings of the same Ireland at that very moment, and conceiving of how to capture it in a way that could resonate in a thousand years' time. Out of this dreaming came a single volume manuscript a type of gallery and anthology all at once, and the great book of Ireland was born. It is this, a very tangible type of writing and experiment that moves me, because suddenly, after all the dance performances and sculpture viewing we have been engaged in, things start to make sense, and suddenly we have this unexpected treasure to explore. Each page we view is a risk in itself, we hear that vellum was a torturous medium to work on. The poets handwrote their work onto the vellum using nibs and pens, implements of an almost forgotten age, and had as such only a single opportunity to get it right before the artists began their work. The vellum was as unfamiliar to the artists too, and it is whispered, in one instance, an artist disassociated himself from the page he had painted as the media thwarted his work. Dennis Brown, the scribe for the book, was another risk-taker. The artist's and poet's work were to be standalone pieces, and in themselves, characteristic of each artist. There was to be no pastiche, no illustration, and it fell to the young calligrapher to unify the work in his response. It is interesting to read Dennis Brown's memories of working on the great book, He hints at the degree of technical difficulties encountered and the pressure brought to bear on him, which sometimes infiltrated his own expression on the pages as he worked. The great book is writing and experiment made flesh, and more than that, underneath the work of 143 poets, 121 artists, nine composers, and one very brave scribe, is the possibility of the stories the pages hold. How on earth could you complete a manuscript such as this without encountering a share of controversy and difficulty, or indeed tales of the opposite, collaborations and opportunities that extended well beyond the making of the book? These are the stories that increase my interest in the book and jab at the storyteller in me. But for the moment, Many of them are still packed tightly within the stretched skin and beneath the ellen boards that encase the book. The day began to change back in that drafty university classroom. The wind died down and the uncertainty I was feeling about my choice of master's degree began to subside. I began to understand that this class, writing and experiment, was just that experimenting with form, yet preserving the writing and the artistry within the form, whatever shape it might take. And it was the great book of Ireland, with all the risk-taking involved in its making, which demonstrated to me that we can even subvert an entire tradition, the long and ancient tradition of manuscript making. But art can still emerge as confidently and wonderfully as ever.
2: I hadn't thought there was a war between painters and poets, but when I visited Imma to view the poem I'd lovingly inscribed in vellum in the great book, it wasn't there. It had been obliterated by a painter. Petition to St. Anthony. St. Anthony, I need you. The poem I inscribed in the great book of Ireland is lost, ganz verschwunden. I've gone through the digital version of the book with Hercule Poirot, and we saw not a line of it. Yet I recall sitting in that room in Dublin with a quill-like pen and a bottle of the blackest ink, and taking three goes to scratch out in my calligraphy the poem of my choosing. Which poem was it? I can't be sure. Yet checking dates, I've come up with a short list. The Irish Times pictured a page of the book purporting to feature my poem, but it was someone else's. My name is in the book, but I'm not there. It's a bit like not being alive, yet thinking I am. I've gone to the page where my poem is supposed to be and used the digital magnifying glass to scrutinize everything. But I found nothing, except under the black the artist plied onto the vellum, I saw what might be my handwriting. Why would she obliterate me? So, St. Anthony, you have the job of a private eye who has recourse to x-rays, and I want a result by my birthday.
3: Selam Kerasimbe is a shark caller who lives on an island of New Ireland off Papua New Guinea. The practice of shark calling is a method of fishing but also a ritual of great importance in the culture of many South Pacific islands. Several years ago I decided to go there to meet the shark callers and to attempt to film them. The shark is one of the oldest creatures on this planet, having evolved to its present form 100 million years ago. Shark are presently under threat from overfishing and the barbaric practice of finning where fishermen cut the fins off the animal, often throwing them overboard to drown. The fins are then sold for soup to the Asian market. Shark calling is an ancient ritual where men travel out to sea in outrigger canoes to catch shark to eat. The callers believe their ancestors guide the shark to them. They prepare by sleeping alone and avoiding foods like pork and flying fox. The next morning they head out singing songs to lure the shark from deep waters. New Ireland is one of the most remote and beautiful places I have ever been. When we arrived, children greeted us singing in harmony on the reef. A group of men sat on logs in the shade and offered me a single white plastic chair to sit on. I explained to them that I was not a film company, that I was an artist who made work about our connection with nature, that I had made a film about an Irish woman who bred jellyfish in her father's house and sometimes made sculpture using shark skins. I told them the art of shark galling had brought me there and that I loved and respected shark. I then noticed an older man sitting alone on the edge of the clearing I recognized him from an early Jacques Cousteau film. I went to him and told him I had seen him on film. He was Selam Kerasimbe, who had once been the leader of shark callers. Some villagers believed he had lost his magic and some of the men were beginning to consider shark calling for tourism. I immediately loved Selam. I asked if I could travel out with him to sea, knowing that it was considered unlucky for women to be in the canoe. He said yes, but that I would first have to wash my body with plants that he would prepare. He disappeared into the forest and returned with a handful of leaves. I slept with them under my pillow and in the blackness of pre-dawn went to the stream and squeezed them over my body. We left the compound out over the reef with the glow of dawn and headed to deep water. The canoes are dug out from a single tree. They are very narrow and finely balanced. Selam rattled coconut shells on the surface in a regular rhythm and sang. We travelled for hours until the sun began to beat on the surface of the sea. We did not catch a shark. Later Selam brought me to meet his family in his village. Women sat peeling sweet potatoes with the sharpened edge of oyster shells and boys wore hats made from banana leaves. Selam opened the door of a small hut where a trunk lay in a corner. He took a key and opened the trunk. Inside was a bag with another lock, and inside that a plastic bag, out of which he pulled a golden DVD. He carefully held it up for me to see. It was a video recording, the contents of which he had never seen. Later on camera, Selam sang a song. A little while into the song he began to weep. I indicated I would stop the camera but he raised his hand and continued. He told me it was a song he had only ever sung alone in the canoe with the shark when he was returning to land. He said he was sad because he feared the ritual of shark calling is dying.
4: She is a small girl suddenly appearing one evening at my front window, wide-eyed behind her glasses and calling out to me from the gathering dusk outside. I've already switched on the light inside my den, but forgotten to close the blinds. The little girl seems mesmerized by the chanced upon spectacle of this old fella on dramatic display amongst floor-to-ceiling bookshelves crammed to capacity. Hey, mister, she pipes up again. Are you a library? (laughs) Then I notice a second little girl standing to the side in the colluding half-dark before the pair of them turn and scamper away, giggling, leaving me with that arresting from the mouths of babes question hanging in the air. Are you a library? Along with all the ordinary accoutrements of living, our semi-D shelters some 5,000 books, mainly in the front sitting room I appropriated as my den, but also part colonizing living room, bedrooms and attic. Domestic tensions and maneuverings can be occasioned by such Biblio Clutter. I've long since theoretically reached the stage of having run out of available space for new arrivals, yet they still continue to sneak in and accumulate, new or second-hand, purchased or gifted. Sometimes they've been evicted in clear-outs of others' attics and turn up at my door pleading for refugee book status. I try to keep the lot catalogued and mapped in a computer program which works well for as long as it continues to work. The whole technology of digital archiving remains still untested in terms of ultimate durability, but that's another story. I've been a computer user since the late 1980s and I also own an e-reader, but the book The real book as cultural artifact and aesthetic object unquestionably remains one of the greatest cultural and technological achievements of mankind and of civilization across the ages. A special part of my collection is a bequest of books from an old friend and book collector, Hugh Ryan who spent his entire working life as an assistant in a drapery store in Carrick-on-Shore, but whose passion was for books, often rare or scarce first editions, some beautifully bound and in some instances signed or inscribed by their authors or former owners. One remarkable example is a Latin Bible printed in Lyon in 1568, with bound and folded in woodcuts and maps, and including handwritten marginal notes in Latin by a clergyman in the early 18th century. Most affecting of all for me, perhaps, is the inclusion in it of locks of some lost loved one's auburn hair, probably a girl's or a woman's, unfaded by the centuries and pinned to particular scriptural passages. In the great cosmic sweep of Sonnet 65, Shakespeare is in terror of the maw of time devouring everything and consigning it to the black hole of oblivion. Oh, how shall summer's honey breath hold out against the rackful siege of battering days when rocks impregnable are not so stout, nor gates of steel so strong, but time decays. But finally, he pauses, with the quill pen poised above the page he writes upon, to sign off with this prophetic lifeline to the future. Unless this miracle have might, that in black ink my love may still shine bright, Story is all, and all is story. In her old age, my mother sometimes mused, Do I remember this, or did I dream it? A bit of both, I suspect, and so for all of us. In our unique individual identity, each one of us entails and signifies a vast inheritance of ghosts, encoded in our given database of genes, those shadowed inner libraries of human lives and stories preceding and in time conceiving us through centuries. Books and manuscripted words carry us beyond frontiers of fact and archival record. They also draw us into mystery and enchantment, the parallel universe of the imagination, linking us with the souls of the living and the great democracy of the dead. There is the sheer delight of reading as a sustaining and interactive communion and a habit that is a lifelong gift once triggered. In my pre-television boyhood, we could scarcely afford books, but books were nonetheless valued in our house, as was music, and education, and writing. Such was the given air we breathed, no matter how bare the cupboard. I was scarce 10 years old when I became incurably addicted through my fortuitous and life-changing encounter with the likes of Mark Twain and R.M. Ballantyne, author of The Coral Island and The Dog Crusoe, And there were also poems I met and fell in love with and embraced by heart. And so such innocent initiation and encounter from my childhood has led me on by a commodious vicus of recirculation to our three-bed semi-D that shelters some 5,000 books and associated papers and also draws me to revisit the apparition of that little girl disclosed in the dark outside my window, like a lost child chancing on a mysterious cottage in the forest, standing on the edge of light, seeking word and story. Oh, yes, little girl, I am a library. And so, in your own unique way, are you And so is everyone.
5: this morning Sunday Miscellany Live was first broadcast in 2014 to mark the acquisition 10 years ago of The Great Book of Ireland by University College Cork On the programme you heard Books, Ships, Shandons A Week of Samuel Beckett in Cork by Thomas McCarthy We also had Writing and Experiment by Michelle McAdoo and you heard Salem Shark Caller by Dorothy Cross My name is in the book but I'm not there was from the late Matthew Sweeney and Michael Cody gave us the piece called Are You a Library? Music on the programme included Vellum for The Great Book, performed by the Cork and Mellon Ensemble with Ilsa Desire, directed by Mel Mercer. Irene and Linda Buckley performed the music Malum. And Matt Cranage performed Aaron O'Lauer on fiddle. We also heard Illa Leonard sing and perform on the shooting box he gave us the track I'm Weary from Lying Alone, which was from the singing of Elizabeth Cronin. And Jim Lockhart's theme from The Great Book of Ireland, arranged by Firco O'Corkin, was performed by him on harp with Geraldine O'Callaghan on fiddle and Mel Mercer on baron. Sound supervision for that programme was by Anto Cunningham. The broadcast coordinator was Geraldine Aspel and the producer was Cleenany on Loon.